You're listening to ReachMD. Welcome to Genetically Speaking, produced in cooperation with the American Society of Human Genetics, advancing human genetics in science, health, and society. Now here's your host, Dr. Howard Levy, medical geneticist in Lutherville, Maryland, and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Howard Levy, your host at the American Society of Human Genetics in San Diego. And with me today is Joseph McInerney, Executive Vice President of the American Society of Human Genetics. And our topic today is the role of the American Society of Human Genetics in health professional education. Joe? Thanks, Howard. Welcome. And thank you for, uh, for being with us here at the meeting in San Diego. This is our 65th or 66th annual meeting. There are about 6,500 people here uh, representing our membership, which is broadly based group of individuals who conduct clinically oriented research in human genetics and genetic medicine. Can you tell us a little more about what the society is? Well, it's the largest genetics professional society in the world. As I said, we have about 6,500 people at this meeting. We have 8,000 members altogether, about 25% of whom classify themselves as clinically oriented genetics professionals. The vast majority of our members are uh, are research-oriented genetics professionals in human genetics, and we also have individuals who spend their time looking at the implications of genetics, including ethical, political, economic, legal implications of the application of genetics in a variety of contexts. So how would the American Society of Human Genetics content and information be most relevant to a clinical healthcare provider? Good question. So our members actually create the new knowledge in genetics that ultimately finds its way into clinical medicine. And our members also are involved in translational research that examines how genetic medicine can be applied most appropriately and effectively. So that's, that's what our members do. Can you tell us a little bit more about what sorts of educational tools are available if a healthcare professional was looking for specific help from the society? This is a somewhat new area for us in terms of new content development, but we still have a fair number of resources available to health professionals on our website, for example, and even at this annual meeting. So on our website, you can find information about policy statements that we have produced on issues such as direct-to-consumer genetic testing, the use of genetic testing in children and adolescents. We're developing a new policy statement on the storage of genetic information in research and clinical context. We're collaborating with the European Society of Human Genetics on the development of a policy statement on non-invasive prenatal testing. We're collaborating with the Jackson Laboratory, which is, which is commonly known as JAKS, on the development of educational materials uh, related to cancer genetics. We also have a program underway on the use of whole genome sequencing in the clinical setting. You mentioned the American Society's webpage. Do you think we should tell our listeners how to find that website? ASHG.org. That's simple enough. What else would users find on the website other than policy statements? So our website is organized around the three dimensions of our tagline, which is discover, educate, advocate. And you'll find information on our website related to all of those aspects of genetics. You will, as I said, find policy statements about genetics, such as genetic testing in children and adolescents. You will find educational resources. Also, in addition to doing education for health professionals, we do education for the general public as well, including high school students. And part of the hope there is primarily to create a genetically literate public that is 
ultimately going to be able to interact with healthcare professionals as those professionals apply genetics in the clinical setting. What's really happening here is, uh, in, in my view, is genetics is moving medicine much more toward a prevention-based paradigm. And that requires significant collaboration and cooperation between the provider and the patient. They have to work together to forestall, for example, the precipitation of diseases to which they may be, individuals may be predisposed. That's very much a partnership opportunity, and it requires an educated public to be able to understand what healthcare providers are saying, and also to work with them collaboratively to develop reasonable approaches to management, prevention, and treatment. So as a healthcare provider myself, I can certainly agree with the value in educating my patients and knowing what I'm saying when I talk to them, but also knowing what they're concerned about when they come to me. But I think I can speak for a lot of my colleagues that it can sometimes be intimidating if my patient comes in knowing more than I do, or even worse, potentially thinking they know something that perhaps isn't correct. How can the society help healthcare professionals who are concerned about that? Well, one of the things we can, we can help with is providing information that clearly is accurate and reliable, and, and also pointing individuals, including clinicians, to other information on the web that we consider to be accurate and reliable. As you know, the web is full of information that's not terribly reliable. I'm sure you see that Absolutely. in your own practice all the time. People come in saying, I read this on the web, and as soon as somebody says that to me, you know, <laughs> my red flags go up for me all over the place because it's, uh, it's, the, it's the classic warning, you know, I heard it through the grapevine, I believe half of what you see is none of what you hear. An excellent so, song, but not always good advice for living your life. Yeah, that's quite so. But in terms of the web, it's a good cautionary tale, I think. There's a lot of poor information on the web. Uh, so one of the things I think providers should be doing is making sure they're aware of what's out there on the web in terms of the issues their patients are bringing to them. And there are some very good, reliable websites, including our own, where you can find substantive information about genetics and genetic medicine. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Howard Levy, and I'm speaking with Joseph McInerney from the American Society of Human Genetics. We're talking about the role of the American Society of Human Genetics in health professionals' education. So we were talking earlier about high school student education, and I'm aware that the society is also helping to educate undergraduate professionals as well as the lay public. Do you want to talk a little bit more about some of the specific programs that are going on and continue to go on? Each year, for example, at this meeting, we run a full-day workshop for high school students and their teachers from the local area. This year we had about 150 students and 30 teachers, and you yourself taught in that workshop, and you have been doing so for quite a number of years, a, a, a workshop on family history, which we call the first genetic test. Absolutely. Really the cheapest and best genetic test. The cheapest test. and best. It's non-invasive, and it's fairly, it's easy to do in some sense, but not always easy to interpret. So that, in yeah. fact, if I can digress for a second, that's one of the things that we try to teach health professionals about genetics and, and, and genetic tests uh, or the family history, to look for red flags in family history that are, that are indicative of potential genetic contributions to disease. So we've been working on that with high school students and teachers and also teachers, uh, instructors at the undergraduate level. Uh, we have uh, we've been running the high school program for more than, for more than 20 years now. And we've been running the undergraduate program for nine years, and that program is open to about 50 undergraduate instructors, and they don't necessarily have to be from the local area. But the undergraduate instructors spend part of the day 
on content updates provided by members of our society, so content updates in various areas of genetics. They don't necessarily have to be related to genetic medicine. They can relate. Last year, one of our talks was on the Neanderthal genome, for example. But equally as important, the faculty spend part of the day looking at effective strategies for teaching. What do we know about effective pedagogy at the undergraduate classroom level? So those are some of the activities we do for non-healthcare professionals. We also participate with the National Human Genome Research Institute in the annual celebration of DNA Day, and we run a DNA Day essay contest for high school students. This year we had more than 700 essays submitted around a question related to complex traits which is something that's very important for healthcare professionals as well. Most of the concentration in genetics, as you know, has been on classic single gene disorders, and that's where we often start with our instruction. But the fact of the matter is most human characters are not inherited in a simple Mendelian fashion. They are compounded of genetic and environmental influences, Absolutely. and sometimes many genes, we don't even know how many, and we're not even sure of what the precipitating environmental factors are. Again, the beauty of the family history, which is agnostic to what the specific genetic cause might be, but allows us to recognize things running in the family. Exactly, and one of the things we emphasize for healthcare professionals is the difference between segregation and aggregation. So single gene characters are going to segregate in families, and those patterns are fairly easy to recognize if you've had some background in genetics, they segregate according to Mendelian principles of autosomal, recessive, and dominant sex-linked characters. Complex traits, on the other hand, aggregate. You don't always see a clear pattern of the presence of disease. They, they aggregate rather than segregate. Just the observation, cancer runs in my family, heart disease runs in your family, right. asthma runs in someone else's yes. family. Absolutely. So it's an interesting point. I don't need an expensive genetic test to tell me that I'm at risk for heart disease when I have four first-degree relatives who have had, who have had bypass surgery. Absolutely. So. And really one of the nice things is you don't need sophisticated training to do that kind of analysis. You certainly can with sophisticated education get precise analyses, but it's often enough to just look at the family history and recognize there's a lot of people with the same disease or related disease, early onset disease, closely affected relatives, and those are some of the red flags that we emphasize. It's an interesting perspective on education for health professionals in general. We're trying to tell them that genetics is not going to be revolutionary for them, it's going to be evolutionary. They've already been doing many of these, many of these tasks. They, they manage uncertainty. There's a good deal of uncertainty inherent in genetic medicine. They've, they've been doing family histories. They've been doing personalized medicine. There's been a lot of discussion about genetics and personalized medicine. And physicians often say to me, I've been doing personalized medicine my entire career. I don't have populations coming into my office. I'm not doing public health in my office. Right. I'm working with individual patients. So we're, we're, we're trying to convey the notion to health professionals that, that what we're giving them is a new set of tools that they can layer onto what they already do well. And we're also trying to find ways to help them overcome the barriers to the integration of genetic medicine, some of which are obvious and some of which are not so obvious. And one of the obvious barriers, of course, is, is a lack of content knowledge in this area. I mean, we know from... We know from the literature that a rate-limiting step in the integration of genetics into primary care practice is the, is the lack of understanding of particularly new genetic technologies. We also know that there's, a, there's an unfortunate lack of confidence on the part of uh, healthcare professionals about their ability to deal with some of these genetic right. issues. 
And there's another problem, which is a dearth of genetics professionals to whom the average primary care provider can turn if he or she needs help. There is a precious small number of people like yourself who are, who are board certified in clinical genetics and also a small number of genetic counselors who are trained at the master's level but are very expert in conveying information in very concise and understandable ways to patients and also very adept at doing risk analysis. But there's an, an unsurprising maldistribution of that expertise uh, often located in major cities where there are tertiary care medical centers. Right. And so uh, somebody practicing, say, in rural upstate New York, uh, might not know, might not even know that this kind of expertise is available as nearby, say, as Rochester or Albany. So again, an opportunity for the society to help simply by making information available on its website as well as related websites where folks can go for information about conditions as well as additional resources for how to refer a patient finding a service exactly. center near themselves. And also, some of the information we're trying to provide for health professionals deals with what to expect in that kind of a referral and, and what the geneticist would be looking for in terms of information from the primary care provider to, to help him or her understand what the next steps ought to be sure. in terms, for example, of, of genetic testing. I would add a couple more barriers to your list of difficulties implementing family history, and that's the time and effort it takes to obtain and update and maintain that family history, as well as how to store it and use it going forward over time. And the good news there is that while the electronic health record can be the bane of many healthcare providers' existence, as it matures, I think we're starting to see the ability for patient portals to enable the patient to start giving us that information. And I'm starting to see a little bit of motion that the EHR vendors are beginning to see the need here and develop better tools. So I'm a little optimistic at this point that the future will bring some solutions to these problems. Yeah, I think that's really good news because in my estimation, the patient should own that information, and the patient should be able to provide updates for that information every time he or she comes in for a subsequent visit. I mean, you or know, even between visits. Even between visits. The, you know better than I that the family history in patient populations is not static. There's new information each time. And I, I really like the opportunity for individuals to own that information and update it as necessary. Absolutely. Well, I think that's all the time we've got. Many thanks to our guest, Joseph McInerney, Executive Vice President of the American Society of Human Genetics. We've been discussing the role of the American Society of Human Genetics in health professional education. I'm your host, Dr. Howard Levy, and please join us next time. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Genetically Speaking on ReachMD. If you missed any part of this discussion, you can download this segment and others in the series at ReachMD.com genetics. Thank you for listening.